This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 63 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today is Chris Schuler, whose most recent book, Along the Amber Route, was nominated for the Stanford Dolman Travel Book of the Year. Now, like the last episode, we recorded this one back in early 2021, before the award announcement. So sorry for the delay, uh, Chris. But we talk about the amber trade routes in Europe and some touch points in the history of amber in Europe. We also talk about editing a travelogue and the difficulties in finding publishers for travel narratives. And all this and more is coming up in the interview. So in travel writing news, uh, the 2021 Wainwright Prize shortlist has been announced and there are some travel books on that list like Cal Flynn's Islands of Abandonment and Anita Seti's I Belong Here. So we'll be rooting for these travel books to infiltrate the Wainwright. Alastair Humphreys published a, a new book called Ask an Adventurer, in which he answers questions about the business side of living a life of travel and, and creativity. So if you are considering a life of writing and travel, uh, if and when the pandemic gets behind us, Alastair's book will probably be a good place to start. And lastly, there's been a uh, kerfuffle in the British publishing world centered around uh, some rather unsavory remarks about children, particularly children of color and autistic children, made by a Scottish writer. Now, this isn't specifically related to travel writing per se. The culprit is a poet and teacher who wrote a memoir about teaching ch children, but it does come from a similar place. Pick up any 19th century travelogue, and chances are you'll find similarly disparaging remarks. In any case, uh, this is a question of bigotry and bad writing, I think, and uh, you should try to avoid both, especially if you're a travel writer, or any kind of writer for that matter, living in the 21st century. In my personal update, I've been enjoying doing a lot of nothing. Uh, I, re I return back to campus next week, though, to, to work, the first time, in fact, since March 2020, and I have serious reservations about it. I, I don't want to get into it too much here, but su suffice it to say that uh, in Florida, where I am, the numbers of cases are at an all-time high, and it seems that each day new figures are released, records are, are smashed. So, you know, I, I, I get it, right? Viruses and bugs have always been an occupational hazard for teachers, uh, but returning to campus amid Delta seems... Uh, more foolhardy than, than ever. So <laughs> good times. Wish me luck. If, in case you missed it, uh, a few weeks back, I sent out my Genius Loci newsletter. It's a free monthly roundup of travel writing news and related links. It's always free, never spammy. So check it out and join at jeremybassetti.com forward slash newsletter. So it was great to hear from everyone over the last few weeks. Uh, on Twitter, Brent and Michael said, absolutely wonderful episode about a very intriguing sounding book. I love when an author connects two seemingly disparate topics, travel and pianos, into a compelling idea. Can't wait to read it. I think Michael wrote that. <laughs> Thank, thanks, Michael. Uh, yeah, 
this is a, a, a wonderful book, and I think it's uh, you know a great example of kind of this quest narrative and travel writing. Um, if you haven't read it, if you haven't picked it up yet and read it, uh, definitely get on that. And Richard uh, from the tip of Africa left a comment on on the website. He said, "Many many thanks for your generosity of spirit and sharing." My daughter sent me the interview with Colin Thubron, without a doubt, one of my favorite travel writers. Uh, thanks for your note, Richard, from the tip of Africa. His daughter somehow found the site and sent him a link to the podcast, which is, you know, it's just great. Uh, sharing is caring. Uh, so if you know of anyone like Richard who would enjoy the show, please send them uh, the links. So thanks for reaching out, everyone, and supporting the show. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet me at Jeremy Bassetti, or you can leave a comment on the show at TravelWritingWorld.com and find the episode. While the show is free, it isn't cheap, so please consider telling your friends like Richard from the Tip of Africa about the show, leaving a review on the Apple Podcasts app or whichever podcasting app you use, or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month, less than a cup of coffee, at TravelWritingWorld.com forward slash support. So now, here is Chris Schuler. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're here to talk about your newest book, Along the Amber Route, which, congratulations, by the way, has been shortlisted for the uh, 2021 Stanford Dolman Travel Writing Book of the Year. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The, I, this, uh... A pleasant surprise. Yeah, the judges, I think, have a difficult decision to make. Uh, but it's great to see so many wonderful uh, travel books written by um, diverse authors and also um, on unusual subjects like yours. Uh, so that's that's great to see. No, it's a terrific shortlist. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously I'm, I'm glad to be in such distinguished company. Mm-hmm. So let's get into it. Um, along the Amber Route. Uh, tell us a little bit. Uh, tell us a little bit about this book. Um, well, it is. In a way, it does two things at once. It's a travelogue and also a family history. Uh, I actually travel along the uh, ancient trade route by which amber was carried from the shores of the Baltic, where it is washed up, to uh, to Italy uh, to cater for demand among first uh, the Etruscans and subsequently the Romans, who fashioned it into jewellery. Um, there are, in fact, several alternative amber routes. There's a western route coming from Denmark mm. down through the Alps into Italy, but that uh, seems to have died out fairly early on. And uh, the main route runs pretty much from the southern and eastern shores of the Baltic up via what is now the site of Dansk, up the River Vistula, and then through uh, the Moravian hills, uh, down into Austria, across the Danube, uh, through Hungary, down through Slovenia, and then into northeastern Italy, Mm -hmm. uh, not far from Trieste, and ended up, uh, certainly during Roman times, at uh, a city called Aquileia, uh, which lies at the top of the Adriatic, midway between Trieste and Venice, and is now a rather charming small town surrounded by the ruins of a much greater Roman city. Mm -hmm. 
So you could have taken any number of routes, I, I guess, to Venice? I, the, I could have done, yes. Mm-hmm. And so the, the ancient route was imprecise. I mean, there wasn't like this roadmap that traders were walking down. So was there a, like a special reason why you chose to follow the route that you followed? I mean, generally speaking, apart from it being the main route, is there just like interesting uh, points along that route related to amber history? Yes. And uh, it also originated in, uh, I mean, the whole project originated about 15 years ago when I went to visit the city of Wrocław in Western Poland, which uh, used to be the German, Eastern German city of Breslau until the end of the Second World War when the borders were moved. And uh, it happened my father was born there. And in fact, uh, his forebears had lived there for at least a century and more. Mm. And that was the reason I went. Uh, And then I realised there's this wonderful main square with uh, this incredible sort of medieval town hall. But in the shops all around, there was amber for sale. And I thought, I was puzzled because I thought I knew it was a, you know, came out the sea. And uh, Rotswab is about 200 kilometres inland. So I wondered why all this amber? And then I visited the city museum, uh, which explained that it was actually a key trading post along this ancient trade route. In fact, it's sort of roughly the midpoint. Mm. And uh, in the course of the 20th century, um, several pits were discovered containing pieces of raw amber, very neatly stacked with the biggest ones at the bottom and the smallest ones at the top, surrounded by post holes, which suggested that there was some sort of roof over them, that they were basically warehouses to store amber uh, before it continued along its journey. And then, so I became interested in this, you know, this trade route and started to research it. Mm -hmm. And it then became apparent to me that this had the makings of a travelogue pretty much as, uh, for example, Colin Thubron did with the Silk Road and uh, others have done with various pilgrim routes, such as the uh, route to Santiago de Compostela. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a sort of kind of preordained itinerary. I also realised that it passed through a lot of the towns that are now in Poland where some of my ancestors lived, not just Wrocław. So out of the various alternative routes that appear to have been active in ancient times, I chose the ones that took me through or nearest to most of these places that had a family connection. And also, obviously, through places of just a general historical and uh, topographical interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. There are points in the book where you mention, you know, it's not the point of the chapter or anything, but you mentioned, oh, you know, this is the prison where my great, great, great uncle was imprisoned <laughs> and and kind of interesting uh, familial history like that, that uh, kind of makes it, I guess, as a personal quest, uh, more enriching to, to, to go on. Absolutely, yes. And uh, I did, obviously, I mean, there were certain parts of the journey, really the middle portion of the book, where the family history comes to the forefront. 
Um, but I did try to keep both elements, um, you know, never try to lose sight of either element for too long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, uh, on your journey, um, well, I guess this, the subtitle of the, of the book gives us a sense of, of your route, right? St. Petersburg to Venice. And you just yes. kind of mentioned your route a little bit there. But why why start in St. Petersburg? And and uh, um, why end in, in Venice? Is there significance? Well, I mean, it Sorry. is ironic that those two cities that are in the subtitle didn't, neither of them actually existed during the heyday of the Amber Group, which was uh, during the late Iron Age and the Roman Empire. But they are inextricably connected with it. And uh, I think it was in 2007 that the European Union uh, declared the Amber Route to be a touristic corridor and uh, provided funding for sort of museums and even things like cycle tracks along the way. And they chose St. Petersburg and Venice as the start and end point. And I just thought they are two big charismatic cities that everybody's heard of. So that was part of the reason. The other reason is that St. Petersburg is also the site of the famous Amber Room at the Catherine Palace, just outside St. Petersburg, actually, at Sarskoye Selo. And uh, I couldn't not have that in the book because it is so well known and it's such a fascinating story mm-hmm. it's uh, its creation its disappearance and it's in recent years it's recreation could you uh, so this this was the first time that i i've never been to that part of the world so this is the first time i've ever heard of the amber room i was wondering if if you could you know perhaps unpack that a little bit like what is so what is the amber room what is so special about it why why is it controversial well the amber room is basically a room that is completely paneled in amber uh, it's got amber panels on the walls amber skirting boards uh amber dado rails and frames and uh, everything that you might expect in a oh baroque room to be made out of wood or plaster is made out of amber or at least surfaced in amber. This was originally commissioned by the elector of Prussia, Friedrich III, for his wife, Sophie Charlotte. And back in the very end of the 17th century, but um, she sadly died and there were quarrels between the designers and the craftsmen. And by the time Friedrich himself had died in 1713, the room was unfinished and his successor, Friedrich Wilhelm, just sort of shoved it in the cellars and wanted nothing to do with it until a few years later, uh, Peter the Great came to visit and he thought, oh, this would make an ideal diplomatic gift. So he gave it to Peter. And it was loaded onto 18 carts and transported all the way from Berlin to St. Petersburg. Mm. And then when it arrived, uh, Peter's right-hand man, uh, Alexander Menshikov, was charged with unpacking it. And they realised that there were bits missing. It was all jumbled up in no special order and there were no instructions. And he just thought, oh to hell with it and again you know packed it away in storage and it was only several decades later uh, that the empress elizabeth elizabeth 
uh, dug it out and first had it installed in the Winter Palace. And then when she had her new palace built at Tsarskoye Salo, decided to move it there. But it wasn't big enough. There wasn't enough panelling to cover the room. So it was bulked out with mirrors and uh, wood panels painted in trompe l'oeil to resemble amber. Um, later on, when Catherine the Great came to the throne, uh, she was not impressed by the kind of you know, shoddy makeshift nature of the <laughs> padding out. So she bought a vast quantity of amber and hired 200 craftsmen to create the extra panels that were necessary out of the real thing. And that there the, there the room stayed until 1941. With the Germans advancing on St. Petersburg, most of the movable treasures were taken to Siberia for safety. Uh, they thought the room was too fragile to move, so they covered it up with false walls. Unfortunately, that didn't fool the Germans, who uh, took down the false walls, dismantled the amber room, and took it back to Königsberg in Prussia, which is now, of course, Kaliningrad, a Russian exclave, which forms part of the roots, part of in, in the book. And there they exhibited it in the castle. Now, Königsberg was very heavily bombed by the RAF towards the end of 1944, and then what was left of it was shelled and set alight by the Russians as they took the city. And in the aftermath of that, the room just disappeared. Mm. Uh, a lot of people thought it was destroyed. Others thought the Germans had spirited away and crated it up and buried it in a mine somewhere in Germany. And this controversy has never ceased. There's been you know, countless attempts to find it. But in the meantime, the Russians have recreated the room using old photographs and drawings uh, partly funded as well uh, as an act of restitution by the German gas company Ruhrgas. And the replica, which took decades to make uh, and is pretty exact, was unveiled finally in 2003, the tercentenary of the founding of St. Petersburg. And it's, it's absolutely glorious. Uh, they've even recreated the... Uh, the signatures of the original artists scratched into the amber. Wow. Uh, and it's it's a stunning thing because it, it uses all the... I mean, <clears throat> amber comes in lots of different colours and textures. You know, it can be uh, clear and honey-coloured or it can be opaque and kind of a soft whitish yellow or it can even be green where it's got sort of plant inclusions. So all these different colours and textures have been used to create decorative patterns. Uh, for example, you know, a, and a lot of the panels are backed with gold so that they reflect the light. Uh, the original craftsman worked out how to extrude amber to sort of incredible thinness. And then they mounted it on board with a, with a sheet of uh, gold foil between the amber and the backing. And then there were sort of carved 
scenes, designs, uh, you know, kind of classical, uh, idyllic um, scenes of, uh, you know, rural life and stuff like that, or cities and so forth, all etched into the amber. And then these etched panels were then framed by uh, white or yellow opaque amber carved like a picture frame. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is fantastically intricate. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think many American listeners will will have heard of Amber, no doubt, because of Jurassic Park and our proximity to the Domin- Dominican Republic, which I think is you know one of the hotspots uh, for Amber. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the hotspots for Amber in Europe, I guess, near St. Petersburg. I mean, there's a concentration of Baltic amber in that region. So I was wondering if you could give us a sense of like why that is. And um, maybe for those who don't know, like what is, uh, what is it, what is amber and why is it so, so special? Well, amber is the resin of trees uh, that was shed some 40 million years ago, uh, usually from conifers uh, and then has been transformed over over the millennia by processes such as polymerization and oxidization into a harder substance. And of course, you know, sometimes you have inclusions, you have insects and other small creatures or bits of plant that got trapped in the resin when it was still soft. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as fossil resin, but that's that's actually incorrect because a Fossil is uh, something made of stone that formed like a, like a cast in the cavity left by a plant or animal that was trapped within sedimentary rock. Uh, this is the amber is the actual original stuff, uh, but it has undergone chemical transformation, which has hardened it and in many cases clarified it. Uh, sometimes there are air bubbles in it, and that's when you get the opaque amber that's created by by air bubbles. Uh, it's been prized since prehistoric times as uh, as an ornament, and it's very light, so it's easily transported. Hence the trade route. Uh, something, I mean, it's like spices or salt. It's light and it's of high value. So it's worth transporting it a considerable distance. Um, and it's uh, quite rare. And um, I, I learned from your book that some of the pieces of amber actually kind of float in, in the sea. And there are people that go wade into the ocean and try to collect or scoop up or somehow gather the amber. And They certainly do. Yes, they were you know, back in the 16th and 17th centuries, you know, they were clad in sort of oiled leathers and uh, waders and went into the sea with nets uh, to fish it out. Um, The Baltic is the largest source of amber in the world. As you mentioned, you know, it is also found in uh, Central America and it's also found in Southeast Asia, in Myanmar. Uh, But the each... The Baltic amber is can be distinguished by its chemical composition. It contains succinic acid. Uh, I think that I can't be one hundred percent certain, but I think that comes from the particular sort of coniferous tree. 
with which it originated. Uh, but in within the Kaliningrad exclave of Russia, which is a bit of Russian territory that's completely separated from the rest of the Federation by Lithuania, Belarus and Poland, because Belarus and Poland became independent of Russia as well when they left the Soviet Union. There is a huge open cast amber mine at a place called Yantani. It was actually established back in the 19th century when the uh, area was ruled by the Germans and then became a Russian or Soviet state industry. It's briefly privatized in the Yeltsin years and then renationalized again. Uh, and I visited that in the course of my journey. And uh, well, there's very heavy security there uh, for obvious reasons. But it's huge. It's a, like this vast lunar landscape. You stand on a sort of cliff overlooking it. And uh, the, you know, the mechanical diggers are like sort of little toy trucks hmm. down below. So it can be mined. It doesn't just kind of float on the, the, the waves of the ocean, but it actually can be mined out of the earth like, like coal or like a diamond? Yes. I mean, basically it's, I mean, well, it's an open cast mine because it's, it's not deep underground like coal can be. Uh, basically, there's a, there's a sheet of amber underlying the southern and eastern part of the Baltic and the adjoining coasts. So the stuff that uh, washes up on the shore or is fished out of the water has been churned up by the waves and currents. And But there is also stuff under the adjoining coast as well. Mm, interesting, interesting. You know, I was uh, looking at some of your earlier books and you've, you've written a few other books uh, books uh prior to this and particularly uh, uh books three three books i think on on maps and you know and i was thinking about your book i was thinking about your earlier books and i was like you know i wonder if he <laughs> you know uh, came uh to this idea or i wonder if this idea was kind of in, in i don't know enriched by kind of your fascination with maps um and kind of like gazing at maps and those things but as a way to to kind of like segue here, those books on maps are not like completely unrelated to you know travel literature. I think there's like a, a similarity here between books on maps and those kind of subjects to travel literature. But talk to talk to us about you know your decision to to write a, a travel log and to to go to these pits and to go to Saint Petersburg and you know head south to Venice essentially like. Um, Talk us through that decision to, to write a travelogue from the position of writing those other kind of books. Well, I mean, to be honest, the, I had the idea to write the travelogue before I wrote the, uh, the three map books. Uh, I, I just made a couple of sort of preliminary exploratory trips to see, you know, whether this was viable as a travelogue and decided it was when I got commissioned to write the first of the map books. And so obviously uh, a project that I was at that stage going to write on spec had to go on the back burner in favour of something that, you know, you would get paid for. <laughs> willing to 
<laughs> put money up front for. And so, and the one map book then turned into three. So in a way, this project was delayed for a bit. I see. And then after the third map book, I decided, no, let's get back into this one, mm-hmm. uh, get it on the road again. In, in our pre-interview email exchange, uh, you'd mentioned something about how it was worthwhile to, to persist persist in a project that you um, believe in. And, and now that kind of makes sense of, of, you know, it gives context to that comment. This is a project that has been like bubbling and I guess fermenting in, in, in your brain that you had to put aside, but you kept on, I guess it's like something that haunts you. It keeps on coming um, back to you and that you just can't put down. But I was wondering if there are any other, like, apart from the, the delays, the kind of very necessary delays, right, the, the need to to make a living, um, were there any other kind of difficulties or um, setbacks um, that challenged your, your persistence or, or putting this book together? Like maybe writing the thing? Like is there something about the form of travel writing that was more difficult compared to those other books? I didn't find... No, I didn't find it a challenge to write. Uh, I did find it a challenge to edit it down to a manageable length uh, because obviously it covers an awful lot of ground and an awful lot of places. Uh, But I did find that once I'd set the manuscript aside for a while, I was able to be more objective and be quite ruthless. I mean, I think I cut it by about a quarter of its original length and... uh, I do feel it's the better book for it. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're editing a, a travel book, you know, there it is in some ways a kind of a, I don't know, like a log of, of what you've experienced and kind of the research and, and, and those types of things. But I guess, how do you, or how do you determine what to edit out in order to keep, I guess, the narrative going? Did you ever like get to the point where you said, I have to, omit this entire city or this entire stop or um, how challenging yes. is that editing? I it's I didn't find it challenging in the sense of I didn't find it difficult to decide what to cut because I mean I've worked as a copy editor for many years on other people's books so I dare say that helps give you a certain objectivity uh, I tried to set aside my own personal feelings. I, I was, you know, I like that place. Oh, I was fond of that incident. Uh, I mean, the old thing about, you know, kill your darlings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was uh, Faulkner. Uh, you know, you've got to decide, is this here just because I like it or is it going to interest a reader? And does it progress the narrative? And you just have to ask those hard questions and uh, then bite the bullet and, you know, and cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the difficult things about travel writing, in, in my opinion, um, is the ability to, as, as you just mentioned, um, sustain interest in the reader or to keep the reader interested in, in what you're writing um, because of the subjective nature of of, of travel writing, right? It's kind of revolves around the individual experience and the challenge for the writer, of course, is to, to somehow translate that personal experience to make it a little bit more universal or interesting, uh, 
for others. Yes, that's right. You have to sort of uh, move on from thinking of it as your personal travel diary and start thinking of it as, uh, well, as an artifact, uh, something that needs to be honed and crafted into the most, uh, into the best form that you're Mm -hmm. capable of making it. So what about the the process of um, finding a publisher for for this, um, I guess, compared to your experiences with your previous books? Travel writing is a very small genre. Was there was there a difference in your in your experience? Oh, certainly, and also, I mean, this was uh, me proposing the idea towards to publishers rather than you know, publishers approaching me to to write a book. Um, I started out. I did have an agent to start out with, a very distinguished agent with some, uh, you know, very eminent clients, but um, he was. Uh, coasting gently towards retirement, let's put it that way. <laughs> and uh, I didn't find that he was terribly effective. And But then I got a, a new agent who was young and keen and excellent. And he sent the proposal to countless publishers. I think he must have had about 20 rejections, to be perfectly honest. More frustratingly, we had two or three very near misses when, uh, you know, an editor said they'd love to have the book and then they got overruled by the proprietor or whatever and all the parent company, which, you know, obviously is, is deeply frustrating. But eventually he managed to place it with Sandstone Press, which is a independent publisher based in the north of Scotland, in Inverness, uh, they do very well. I mean, they bring out three or four books every month and have done for the past 15 years. And among the books they published with the English translation of Joker Alcarthy's Celestial Bodies, which won the Man Booker International mm. uh, in 2019, I believe, which is... Uh, a huge coup, and they've they've received sort of uh, the Scotland Saltire uh, Society Publisher of the Year two years running. They are small enough to take real care over every book they publish, and you know, after all, their authors, and yet they have enough clout to get the book out there and make a mark with it. And uh, I think. So it all worked out for the best in the end. And I think, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm very glad to be published by them. Yeah, that's great. And I guess one of the, um, I'm just connecting the dots here, and you'd mentioned that, you know, you do some editing work um, on the side, and you also publish other types of books, perhaps a little bit more lucrative. And I guess the, the word of caution here is that, um, you know, to make a living on travel writing alone is can be quite difficult um and- yeah, oh absolutely i i would i would have said it's uh, unless you're a real big seller uh and they tend to be of an older generation mm-hmm. uh, or they are people who've got tv tie-ins or who already have some other kind of media profile uh but in fact most writers i know not not and not just travel writers but writers of general nonfiction and of fiction uh, who are what uh, 
the industry call mid-list authors, i.e., you know, they sell respectable quantities, they get good reviews in national newspapers, uh, you know, they win prizes. Um, they don't make a living out of it. Uh, Monique Roffey, who's has just won the Costa, which actually the prize money, I think, is 30 grand. It's a lot of money. Uh, a couple of weeks before, she was unable to pay her rent. And this is a writer who's been published for 20, 25 years now and wow. is very highly regarded. So, no, the answer is you're not going to make a living out of it, to be honest, unless you're already a TV celeb or something like that. <laughs> All right. At risk of getting uh, too depressing, I think uh, we should move on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But um, we're getting kind of close to time anyway, so I was wondering if you could uh, close us out by reading a short passage from your book. Yes, I will. I mentioned Kaliningrad, mm-hmm. uh, this strange Soviet ex, uh, a strange Russian exclave, which seems to exist in the Soviet time warp because, uh, you know, you've still got roads named after Lenin and uh, so forth. Um, now, it's surrounded by a ring of 19th century forts that were built when it was part of Germany. And I go out and with my translator and visit one of these forts. The forts on the inner ring road were mirrored by an outer circuit of 15, sighted one kilometre apart beyond the city limits. They were built after the Franco-Prussian War, in part by French POWs and funded from the five billion francs of war reparations paid by France. Seldom visited, they had been used for the past 50 years to store vegetables and were slowly crumbling away. Most were dangerous. Some were still surrounded by unexploded mines. But Fort Number 1, named Fort Stein after the Prussian statesman of the Napoleonic era, was looked after by a volunteer caretaker who lived there with his family. One afternoon, Lydia and I drove out to visit him. The polygonal fortification stood on a low tree-covered hill amid neglected farmland to the east of the city. It was surrounded by a deep, dark moat, which we crossed by a drawbridge covered from both sides by gun embrasures. A tall, rangy man in his mid-forties opened the massive iron door and greeted us. Stanislav first came here in 1991, when a cooperative, the Old City, was set up to restore Kaliningrad's historic buildings. They rented the fort from the organisation that stored vegetables and grain there. Then, with the help of volunteers, they started to restore the building. When he was evicted from his flat in town, he moved in and had squatted the place for the past 15 years. Stanislav introduced us to his friend Sergei, a young man in combat fatigues who belonged to one of the patriotic clubs, military enthusiasts who sought out the remains of fallen soldiers to give them a proper burial. At first, it was difficult to find the information necessary for an accurate restoration, but then two sons of former German commandants visited and explained many aspects of the building. The last commandant was killed by his own troops when he refused to surrender. He's buried out there, Stanislav said pointing to the rampart. Stanislav's office occupied one of the barrack rooms. 
He and his family lived in another. There was no running water except for a well. Beside the broken stump of an old iron standpipe, a modern electric pump had been rigged up. If they needed electricity, Stanislav had to cycle to the nearest filling station with a jerry can to fuel the generator. This had not stopped the electricity and water companies from presenting him with enormous bills. The officials who made out the bills knew perfectly well that we had no mains water or electricity, he explained. They just expect you to pay a bribe. One day they'll probably take the building and we'll be on the streets. A glass-fronted bookcase stood along one wall of the office. On the others were maps, photographs and charts. A wood-burning stove in the corner was the only source of heat. In the bookcase were a number of smaller artefacts, cartridge cases, a dagger and an aluminium belt buckle with a swastika surrounded by the words Gott mit uns. As I translated, Sergei fidgeted with the bolt of his submachine gun while Lydia hissed, the devil was with them. Thank you. That was great. Um, as in travel, I think travel literature seldom focuses on Eastern Europe. And, uh, you know, readers will find this book interesting by virtue of that alone, um, to say nothing about how, how rich it is, uh, the book is with history. Uh, so thank you for, for reading that for us. Thank you very much. So to wrap things up, uh, where can we find you online? Uh, www.cjshuler.com Easy easy uh, enough. (laughs) That's my my website. All my books are on there. Various articles I've uh, written and published over the years and and a blog, which I don't update very often, I'm afraid. (laughs) We'll we'll put the links in the show notes. And thanks for coming on the show. And again, congratulations on your Stanford Dolman Travel Book nomination. Well, thank you very much for having me. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.